Now, this morning, I'm going to be beginning a series after prayer, counseling with the elders. We feel this is a proper thing that should be ministered at this particular time. Cannot finish it properly so you will understand how to apply it in your life without three or four messages on the subject. And what I'm going to be ministering is on the subject of 3 John 2, not just the scripture, but the basic subject matter that it carries. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. Now this particular subject has probably been one of the big troubles in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Either people see a few scriptures on the subject of prosperity, and if they do, they rush off to become rich, and then some others wonder, say, if God wants to prosper me, why doesn't he prosper me? I mean, various ideas. First of all, I want to say that prosperity has to be understood from God's point of view. It is not as the world deems prosperity. The world, if a person has a million dollars, we say he is prosperous. Or if he's got a, a job and prospects of getting yearly increases and finally he'll get the 50 or 100,000 a year, we say, oh, he's really prospering. That person may be dying or may already be dead. That is not God's prosperity, not prosperity from God's point of view. God's prosperity encompasses this. Number one, that you may prosper. That does have to do with material things. And be in health. Your body will be healthy. Ecclesiastes is very real. He said, I've seen a great evil on the earth where a man has money and no health to enjoy it. He said, this is vanity and vexation of spirit. So I hope you can understand then that prosperity from God's point of view is more than money by a long way. It's more than material things. It has to do then with health. And the third thing it has to do with is as your soul prospers. That means that you will have sound emotional responses to life, a sound mind by which to see how life really is, strong will to carry out what has to be carried out, the discipline of life, so that your life is filled continually with joy and blessing and the rewards of that which was supposed to come to you. However, I want to say for years, those things were not mine at all. Now, I could read the same as anyone else could read and see that God had promised those things and yet the fact is, I had none of them. And when I say none, I mean none. They were all stripped away before it was finished, and I had none of that at all. Over the years, that has turned around completely. Now, the reason it has turned around, and this is why I'm taking time to do this, many times a person will preach one idea like, if you tithe, God will prosper you, or if you uh, go to church, God will prosper you. There's no teaching like that in the Scripture at all. That is one aspect of a general prosperity. But there's something absolutely fundamental to any Christian life that has to be understood. Until I understood this, nothing really worked in my life at all. It was a continual uh, damaging types of things worked in my life until I began to understand this one thing. Now, there's much more to be said, and I'll say that over the next few weeks, and I'll touch on the principles of blessing themselves. But right now I want to deal with what the Bible deals with, the sovereignty of God. And I'd like you to bow your heads with me, because I say, until I understood this, nothing ever really worked in my Christian life. I knew I was going to heaven, but I certainly had no long, continuing blessing. Heavenly Father, I pray now in the name of Jesus Christ that this particular subject matter we really grasp and can understand, that you assert yourself to be sovereign, you assert yourself to be overall, you assert yourself to be the ruler 
with the right to command and direct our lives. And Father, I pray that we're able to understand that and not just understand it, but joyfully submit to it as understanding that that is the greatest security that a man or a woman on the face of the whole earth has, that we have a loving God who really stands ready to direct our lives with perfect wisdom. Grant us to understand this today, Lord, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to many people, a message on the sovereignty of God is a very threatening message because it really means that someone is asserting in this universe that they and they alone have the right to direct your life, that you do not have the right to direct your life. And for many of us humans, because we come from a sinful stock, Adam has fallen into sin and that's passed, we are of that mindset that Adam had when he partook of the tree of knowledge and from that time on tried to direct his life and the result is brought the human race to destruction. All right, so now, dealing with this matter of sovereignty, I'm saying that I had to come to terms with this, and many of these things were very difficult. For instance, one of the things that was very difficult in dealing with the sovereignty of God lay in this area. I found it extremely difficult to simply agree with God that he was right all the time, especially in a book that was written 2,000 years ago. For instance, the first three chapters of Romans gave me a great deal of trouble That Bible talks about we, as a human race, all of us together, are guilty of all of the sins enumerated in Romans 1 through 3. Now, my basic mind rebelled against that because I could hardly allow myself to even think I was guilty of anything too much. I really thought of myself as a fairly decent kind of person, not really, uh, you know, a real trouble. I didn't go around murdering people. I didn't... Uh, go around ripping them off their wallets out of their pockets and I didn't do stuff like that. I mean, I'm really a pretty nice guy. I mean, I'm telling myself this now. See? And when God showed me Romans 1 through 3, I spoke out, said, no, I'm not guilty of all these things. I'm not this kind of a person. Now, this went on in my life for a number of years and I say, while it did, I had these tremendous emotional upheavals, these tremendous terrible things where I felt ripped off all the time. I did not have any degree of prosperity in my life at all. And I found myself, the reason for it later on was I was contending with God. Finally, I brought myself to the place where after some understandings, I submitted to God on every point. Now, that doesn't mean I'm perfectly living every point, but I have totally submitted that to him. And when he speaks, and it's different from what I'm doing, he's right and I'm wrong. There is no more contending well, God, how about this, and I feel this, and I think this, and this seems right to me. There's no reasoning with God. I submit to what he says, because I understand what sovereignty is. Now, second thing in God's assertion of sovereignty that I came to is I studied, for instance, like books like Job. Job is a very puzzling book, unless you understand it from the point of view of the sovereignty of God. God allowed something to happen. He didn't make it happen, but he certainly allowed it to happen. I mean, he did not have to do that, but he allowed it to happen. Spoke to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, oh, sure, no wonder he serves you. You put this hedge around him, so forth, you know the story. And God says, you can do anything you want to his property, don't touch his body, and so forth. And then you remember what happened there. And it says, in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God foolishly. But he got very close to charging God foolishly. He didn't do it, but he got very close to it because his friends provoked him, and he was starting to reason the starting, the process, the beginning process of reasoning against God's dealings with him. Like, 
Why is this? I want to present myself to God. I want to argue my case. If only I could present my case, then God would see he's treating me wrong, and then he would repent of what he is doing. He would set me free. And he was getting ready to contend against God's position as sovereign. Now, you have to understand this because one of the strongest teachings of Scripture, unless your mind can take hold of it, you kind of like, oh, this is what I feel, and we find ourselves contending against God. Finally, Job comes to the place where he meets with God, and God begins to speak to him. Now, the interesting thing is God never answered him one question that Job had brought up. There's never one question that God ever answered to him. He simply begins to ask him things like, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you? Can you fish out Leviathan with a hook? Can you feed the birds of the air? Can you... Uh, and he goes through this process for about two chapters here, and I'm going to read you the end of it here. Then Job answered the Lord. This is chapter 42. God has been, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook, or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? And he's asking him all these things, can you do this, Job? Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's referring to himself, because that's the question that God asked him when he first started to talk to him. He said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? The words you're speaking, you're totally without knowledge in this affair, and yet you're arguing like you have some. Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know, here now and I will speak. I will ask thee, and do thou instruct me, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee, therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. And when Job did that, the trial was over, and the blessing of God began to come back on his life again. See, when he stopped the contention with God, the blessing of God began to come back on his life. Now, until we, until I, I'm going to make it my own point, but you must put yourself, because I'm kind of re rehearsing this for your sake, until I learn to do that and stop contending with God. Why have you done this to me? Why is this happening? I don't understand this. What does I done? I tried to do this. So I've been a good Christian. I, I did this. So you are see and stop that contention and say, Lord, I know that you have all power to do whatever you wish to do. I am in your hands. Show me what you want to work out of my life, and I will walk that way. I will not contend with you anymore. Now that's not the same thing as saying we shouldn't fight against the devil. Most of the time, we're not fighting against the devil. We're contending against God's dealing in our own life. See, and that, that was one of the great problems of my life. Now, look here in Romans 9, if you'd like to follow with me in the Bible. You will see here that God does not answer again. Now, Paul here is dealing with this particular subject, this Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? All right, now it's a question. Well, then if God is sovereign and God directs everything and God gets his will and his way, who is resisting him? Notice now, no answer here. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? See, this is what God, who are you, O man? See, he's, remember David's statement, he's thinking about man, he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? He's a worm, you know what I mean? Now, we think of ourselves as high up on the, in creation. You know, we're, we're pretty high up there. And that is true if you're considering an amoeba and a rock for comparison, see? You know, you look down there at an even and say, I am really up here. But if you compare yourself with God, we're way down here. And so the reply of God to this person is, on the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
Or does not the potter have right over the clay to make this from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Now, many times we hear among Christians, Oh, Lord, I wish you'd made me so I'd be six foot four. I wish you'd have made me with a different shaped nose. Why couldn't my eyebrow, why couldn't I have, I wish I had been, I wish that I could have. See, all of this thing, without understanding it, is really a very clear evidence that we are contending against what our Maker has done. He has molded us. Psalm 139 is very clear about that. He has molded us. The Bible says the hairs of our head are all numbered. And here in Psalms 139, was very enlightening to us if we wish to look. He's talking about God being totally omniscient and all-wise. Then verse 13, Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written. Now listen to this, please. The days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Now, what do we gather from this? Well, before I was born, God is saying, the number of days that I'll live on this earth were already written in God's book. See, in our minds, it's, well, why, how come, uh, now, it means out here, some part, somewhere out here, I'm going to die by God's will, and uh, that's right. See, the day that God determined to bring me forth, and that's really way back in eternity, but he brings me forth, before I was born, the days that were ordained for me were already written. Now, I'm going to die out here someplace. I don't know where. That may be tomorrow. That may be five minutes from now. Maybe 50 years from now. I have no idea. I'm not concerned about that at all. But I used to be. How can I make myself live longer? I wish to tell you I can't. I can make myself live shorter, but I can't make myself live longer. And if I make myself live shorter, I will find out in the end God knew about that before I did. See, so what I'm saying, Lord, therefore, I want to live the days that are ordained for me. I will therefore submit to your sovereignty and live out those days submitted to you. Now, see, there has to be an attitude of mind which begins to say to God, you have the right, I do not have the right, therefore you speak and I will follow. All right, now, let's take a look at some of these scriptures here, how God establishes what he says about that. First of all, God states that he owns everything. Now, here is where many people fail in their prosperity. I will that you prosper and be in health, even your soul prosper. They fail because they don't understand that God owns everything. And when he says he owns it, he doesn't mean that, well, sure, God owns it. We know that. But he means I own it. You do not own it. As a matter of fact, he will say later on, I'll read that to you. You are a sojourner and a tenant on this earth. See, the earth is his. We are simply passing through on this earth. We can use it for a little while, and we pass on to our, hopefully, heaven. If you, well, it will be heaven if you know the Lord. If it isn't, then to destruction. All right. Now, Genesis 14, 19. Melchizedek met Abraham on the return of that battle with the five kings. He had just set Lot free and all the people free, and they were following him, and he meets Melchizedek. And he, Melchizedek now, blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. Now notice what he asserted. This Melchizedek, who was a type of Christ, might actually have been a manifestation of the Lord Jesus himself. I don't know. Now notice what it says. God Most High is what of heaven and earth? 
possessor. They, oh, I own this land right here. I've got it on a deed. It says, we own nothing. We can claim we do, but that will get us into trouble. I own nothing. God owns it all, and he lets it into my hands for a temporary time. See, you can't take it with you. You'll find out you think you own it. See what happens at the end. You'll see, you leave it, and you don't take one thing with you at all. Only what you have sent forward, you take with you. Only what you give up, you get to keep. All right. So then he says, it is God who is possessor of heaven and earth, and it is he who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now here again, we challenge the sovereignty of God when we say, yes, and I formed a great strategy here, and I put together this great plan, uh, and I went out there, and, uh, and at nighttime we uh, jumped upon the enemy, and we defeated them completely, and uh, it was a brilliant strategy. Yes, that was really great, Abraham. Thank you all. Thank you all. We don't know that we are contending here with the sovereignty of God. It is God who has delivered your enemies into your hands. See? Now, until we understand that, it is God, 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 it is God. And therefore, he's the source of all praise, honor, glory, and blessing. Amen. Now, second scripture, Deuteronomy 10:14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that in it. Now, let's go over that. To him belong the heavens and the highest heavens, and the earth, and what's next? All that is in it. Gold, silver, cattle on a thousand hills, amoeba, rocks, trees, and what? Me and who? Say it out loud. Say me. 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 See, that's the assertion. You belong to me. Whether you recognize it or not, whether you resist it or not, whether you fight it, the worst sinner who ever lived, the Adolf Hitlers and the Stalins and so forth, and the Alexander the Great, all belong to God, though they rejected his sovereignty and came to ruin. We, thank God, have a privilege of accepting his sovereignty and walking in his way. Now, turn with me to this wonderful revelation here in First Chronicles, the 29th chapter. And here we find this very, very successful man, David the king. And you're going to see why he was successful. There are other scriptures that will bring him into being in exactly the same way. Now, I'm going to start here in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed art thou, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord... Now, here's this understanding that David has about the sovereignty of God. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all. Now, notice the position that God is taking. See, we are never owners of anything on this earth. God says, it is all mine, and I am head over all. And it's up to me to distribute it as I see fit. Now, sometimes what happens, he distributes into our hands, and we don't say, now, Lord, you place this in my hands for your kingdom and for your good, what do you want me to do with it? We say, this is mine, and I will determine what I will do with this particular amount of money here, or riches, or our emotions, or our brains, or our life, or whatever we have. Both riches and honor come from thee, and thou dost rule over all, and in thy hand is power and might, and it lies in thy hand to make great and to strengthen every one. See, it lies in thy hand power, not from myself. God raises up one, puts down another, the Bible says. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. But who am I 
He hears this man who said, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Often he speaks this way, who am I, he said, and who are my people? The Israelites, what are we? He said, the little teeny nation. But he said, you placed your name upon us, and therefore we are great because of your... He didn't think he was great because of his great skill. Who am I, and who are my people, that we should be able to offer as generously as this? Now notice, for all things come from thee, and from thy hand we have given thee. In other words, he's saying... The offerings that we gave you to build this temple, Lord, we didn't give you anything. All things come from your hand, and we have given to thee that which is in thy hand. And for all things come from thee, and from thy hand we have given thee. For we are sojourners before thee. Sojourner, just a person passing through. We are sojourners before thee, and tenants, as our fathers were, all of our fathers, our days on the earth are like a shadow, there is no hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build thee a house for thy holy name, it is from thy hand, and all is thine. Now, when he says that we are tenants, what is he asserting? All of us, he said. And all our fathers, the same way, Abraham and all the Jewish people that came down. What is he asserting when he says we are all sojourners and tenants? What is he saying? We own nothing. Amen? We use the earth, and we pay rent for its use. Very important concept to understand. God retains, because actually tithing, see, is a symbol to the person who understands it of recognizing God's sovereignty. And when a person doesn't tithe, they're saying, I don't believe God has a right to ask me a tenth or a fifth or anything. I'll give him what I please, and if I don't feel like doing it, I don't do it, or I give it where I want, when I want, how I want. God says, you're tenants. See? Now, you can imagine if you had an apartment house or a house, and you rent it out to somebody, and the person says, I'm a tenant. So you say, all right, I'll let you in as a tenant here, and then you sign up an agreement, and the person says, um, I've changed my mind. I'm in here, and I'm not getting out, and furthermore, I'm not going to pay rent, and furthermore, I'll pay it if I want to pay it. I'll pay half of the rent, or I'll pay a third of it, or I'll pay all that. I might pay none of it. I'll pay... You say, you're going to get out of here. So you, we'll take action upon you, and eviction will take place immediately. All right, now, there needs to be something very clearly understood there when they use the word tenant. We are a tenant. I say, all of that I had to recognize and submit to in God, and there were long periods of time, brothers and sisters, in my life that two things went together. I did not recognize the sovereignty of God, except theologically, oh yes, God's sovereign, oh yes, oh yes. See, like that. But it did not get down in my spirit that God is sovereign, and I am a sojourner, and I am a tenant on this earth, and I'm here for one purpose, to carry out what he wants, and I'm going to give myself to it. That took years to bring it about. But I want to tell you, right along with the years of grasping that, were years of sadness and pain and heartache, and finally the destruction of my family, is all you don't know my history took place, and then finally restoration, as I recognized the sovereignty of God, and then God said, you go back to the wife of your youth, and you establish covenant with her again. It was not like God saying, would you do this, Jim? I, I would... I would really like you to do this. It was still the sovereign speaking. Are you ready to obey me? I am sovereign. I said, yes, Lord. See? And out of it has come tremendous blessing. See, once that was clearly established, out of my life began to be this endless blessing and is going on to this day. And I believe it will continue to the day that I die unless I make the foolish mistake of taking back into my hands again that I am the sovereign of my life. It is God was the sovereign of my life. All right, now there are many, many other scriptures that indicate that, but read those that I've given you. Now, the second thing is that his sovereignty must be upheld and submitted to 
And if you'll turn with me now to the book of Genesis, you will see here how God does this, his establishing of that sovereign place. And this is the second chapter of Genesis, and I'm going to read verse 7 now. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now notice he didn't ask the man if you want to be created. He simply created the man. Breathed into his nostrils, I am going to create a man. Now he does this out of love, he does this out of wisdom, he does this out of understanding and knowledge, but regardless of how it's done, he did not consult the man. He simply created the man. Now have you ever heard this statement? I didn't ask to come to this world. I didn't ask to be born. Now I am born. It wasn't my fault. I'm here. Now somebody owes me something I feel. You ever heard that kind of thing? God says, that's rebellion. That is not submitting to my sovereignty. See, God brings man into the earth, and then he creates a garden. He didn't ask man about which garden you want created. Do you like this kind of flowers or that kind? Maybe you like pink instead of yellow. Maybe you like, uh, see, he simply plants it. He puts man in the garden, and he says, now here is the rules of the game. He doesn't ask Adam, let's sit down and negotiate a constitution here. He simply says, here's the rules of the game. All right. Now, then the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted the garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And then it goes on to tell how he caused all the trees to grow. And then in the midst of the garden, he put the tree of life and also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this knowledge of good and evil, I'd like to tell you what it is. The knowledge of good and evil, I think, is what happens to me when I start contending against God that my reasoning is better than God's reasoning. See, I know good and evil too, Lord, and I know you say that this is not good, but uh, frankly, I've been thinking about it, and I think this is best. See, let's take this question of the, God says, I hate divorce. All right. Now, God does not want divorce. I tell people there may be reasons we're forced into divorce, but I'm telling you God is never for it. He is always on the side of reconciliation. He wants families to continue together. Is there any way to do it? There's just no question about that in Scripture, what God wants. Now, sometimes it happens, though, that it comes about. I'm not getting into that today. I've seen this other little lady over here, and uh, she's just a beautiful blue eyes, looks at me so adoringly, just absolutely, oh, so wonderful, and just so forth, and therefore I'm going... That is never God's revelation to a man. It is always Satan breaking in, just exactly like he did in the Garden of Eden. I'll read to you what he did here. Garden of Eden, chapter 3. He comes into this garden... Uh, I told you what he said, the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge, remember, is my contending against God. God says, do this. I contend against him and say, I have a better plan. All right, third chapter here. Satan comes into the garden, and the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not touch it or eat from it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. In other words, contending. Well, I know God says that, but I tell you, he's wrong. All right. For God knows that the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Lie. They would know good and evil, but they would not know what to do with that knowledge. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband, and he ate with her. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked. And Adam, by his action, along with Eve, released hell into this earth. 
because they took the sovereignty into their own hands. We now know how to run our lives. We know what to do. We know how to run it, and the whole earth turned dark, and to this day, we still have exactly the same problem. I'll show you that even though the curse of God can be on a nation, even in the middle of that curse, men can rise up who, by following God's way, are blessed. Right in the middle of darkness, light rises. All right, so keep in mind clearly now what we said here. His sovereignty must be upheld. Now, when Adam ate of that fruit, when Eve ate of that fruit, they infringed upon God's sovereignty, and God had to act in judgment. He had no choice. His sovereignty must be upheld. He must assert his authority and maintain it. He's the only one rightful ruler in this world. Satan works to get man to reject his sovereignty, which we've already talked about. Satan's fall came about exactly the same way. And you read that in Isaiah 14, 13 to 15. We won't turn to it because I'm trying to maintain time here. Now I want you to turn with me to Psalms and you'll see what the nations are doing. Exactly the same thing. Second Psalm. And this verse 1, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, here's the counsel they take. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, I'm not going to listen to God anymore. I know what it says here, but I'm not going to obey it. Or I know what the, I'm not going to do it. Here's what I think is a better thing. I'm going to do this better thing. And they begin. Now, the Bible says the nations of the earth take counsel together. How may we cast God's fetters off from us? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But now listen to King David. Listen to it very carefully. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And what happened to David the king? It says, in those days, great nations brought him tribute, and God raised him up to be the greatest of all Israel's kings. Why? Because he said, I am not rebelling against you, God. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, you are my God, you are my king, you are the leader of Israel, I will follow you, and God raised him up out of the dust to become the shepherd of Israel and the greatest of all kings that Israel had ever known. Hallelujah. All right, now understand then that this principle of sovereignty must thoroughly be submitted to or we bring upon ourselves all kinds of pain. God will not allow any infringement on his sovereignty. I'm going to draw some conclusions now. Everything is God. And if you prosper materially, it will be because God releases the things that are his into your hand. Now, we'll read some scriptures about that later. Uh, you will see here that prosperity and wealth are from God. They are not uh, from your own brains or your own ability. They are from God. God uses your brains, but that's not where it comes from. As a matter of fact, the prosperity of the wicked and the prosperity of the godly are two different things. The Bible says in Proverbs 13:22, the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. See, God allows them to be like custodians of this until you're ready to handle it. And when you properly recognize the sovereignty of God and submit yourself and allow God to really direct your life into the channels for which you were put on this earth by God, that wealth will be transferred to you to be used for his kingdom. But he is not going to transfer that wealth to you to be squandered on ostentatious living. He will let the wicked do that because that is wickedness. Now, sometimes Christians, the minute they get some money, immediately... Now I can get this and do this and this, and I'm over here, and then I will just say, and they forget completely, God, this is not mine. I'm a tenant. You put this in my hand to be used for your kingdom. What do you want me to do with this? See, then it's up to God to tell you what to do. He is the sovereign. Now, on the other hand, the righteous says, Deuteronomy 8, 18, 
but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. It does not come out of our own brains. It is he who gives you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant to you as he has done to our fathers. First conclusion, everything is God's. And if you prosper materially, it will be because God releases the things that are his into your hand. It still remains his, for we are never owners of anything but only tenants and sojourners. God will not allow infringement of his sovereignty to go unchallenged. He is gracious and slow to bring judgment. But unless repentance and restitution take place, judgment is certain. Colossians 1.25, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done. And there is no respect of persons with God. Saint or sinner, it's all the same thing. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Because he's sovereign. He cannot allow his sovereignty to be challenged. He must respond and overthrow that attempt to unseat him. By the way, I want to stop here right now. How many of you understand, you think in your heart, what I just said now? Could I see your hands if you understand that? Well, it seems like a pretty good grouping. Well, then I'm going to ask us to pray. I'd like you to bow your heads with me. How many of you know, really from the Word of God, that you must submit yourself as sovereign to God? Would you raise your hand before him right now and say, I know it, O Lord. Amen. Then I'm going to pray. Father, I pray right now as I speak these words to you, but I'm also speaking to your people, Lord, that we'll reflect on each one of these. And Lord, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. Oh Lord, is my heart and life and mind, is it submitted to you as sovereign? Dear, I realize my life is not my own, but that I'm bought with a price, and I'm to glorify you, my sovereign. Do I realize the days that I have are all numbered? And Lord, that my life is in your hands and it's not mine. I submit my life to you. Do I realize the plan for my life is not up to me to determine what I wish to do, but it's up to me to find out what you wish me to do and then carry that out. Lord, I submit that plan to you. I submit myself to you that you might reveal your plan for my life and work out your plan in my life. Lord, my home, if I'm married, and my home, if I'm at home, have I submitted myself and my home, my father, my mother, my children, my husband, my wife, have I submitted these things to you, Father? Search my heart, O oh God, I pray. I pray the money that you've given into my hands for me to be a manager of. Have I really submitted it to you, Lord, or do I use it like it's my own? Everything that I have on this earth, Lord, if I have a ministry as all of us do. Lord, is that your ministry or is it my ministry that I'm building? Oh God, we submit ourselves to you here today, now. You be the sovereign in our life. You rule our days and our nights. You reveal your plan to us. You carry out your will through us and be glorified in our lives. We ask that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to bring the second part of this message. The law of blessing and cursing. The law of blessing and cursing is a part of the law of judgment. Christians, by the way, should know about the law of blessing from experience and should never know about the law of cursing. Unfortunately, some Christians know about the law of cursing and relatively little blessing. They don't know about it, they just know it happens. Now listen carefully to this. Blessing comes on the one who submits himself to God's sovereignty. Very clear thing. Blessing comes on the one and follows his ways. 
but the fullness of the blessing may not be seen until the succeeding generations, even the third and fourth generation. Now, this is why you oftentimes hear me say my plan or my hope is to raise up preachers that are preachers of greater sermons than I've ever preached, builders of greater churches than I've ever dreamed of building, that they will send out more teams in the future, they will establish more, see mightier apostles than I've ever dreamed of being or seeing or knowing. Always that aim, because what I realize is I've understood something of the sovereignty of God, something of the blessing of God, something of the reality of God, and I want to pass that along to you. But I hope you will take it and not have to go through all of the down things that so many people go through because they don't take what they've learned and go with it. Because if you do that, you put a right foundation in your life, and then you can add to it things that I never had time to learn. So the next generation can be greater than this one. The one following can be greater. The one following greater, that's God's plan. Ever greater with the blessing of God. So just me being good in my generation can have an effect of succeeding generations. And the same is true of cursing. Now, cursing comes on the one who rejects God's sovereignty and refuses his ways. But the full outworking of the curse may not be seen until succeeding generations appear. Remember the Bible says the man that does evil, what happens? That's visited upon the children, what? To the third and the fourth generation. You understand that? See, it's not just what we do. It's what we plant in our children and plant in theirs and plant in theirs. Now, fortunately, hallelujah, the succeeding generations can break the curse, but they must break it by confession, faith, and persistent action to establish God's sovereignty and ways in them. Very important that we do that. Now, I'll give you an example of that, how we can affect future generations. God told him, the children of Israel, when he brought them into the promised land, he said, this land is mine, you're tenants and sojourners, you can find that all the way through the Bible. This land is mine. I've given it to you. It's farms that you didn't plant. It's houses you didn't build. I've driven out those which were before you because they were wicked. They served other gods. They were idol worshippers and they did abomination before me and I have cast them out of the land. And I bring you into this land of blessing. But if you do the things which those which were here before you did, I will cast you out of the land in the same way. Now then he told them what to do with the land. And one of the laws that he gave them is every seventh year you don't plant. See, now, well, wait a minute, is this my farm or is this your... Oh, it's your farm, right? That's right. After a while, the Israelites started disobeying God's ordinance. He said, the seventh year you don't plant. You leave that ground fallow, and what grows of itself, you leave that for the poor. You may eat out of it a little bit, but don't reap down that field. You leave it for the poor, and you'll let that land rest. And he said, I will give you enough in the sixth year to go all the way to the end of the eighth year so you will not be without food. You will not be without good things. The land is mine. See, now what God is doing is asserting his authority. He's asserting his sovereignty. The land is mine. You plant for six years, let that land rest the seventh year. You work for six days, see the days are not yours, you rest the seventh day. Here's this money that I give you. You take a tenth part and you honor me with the first fruits of all your increase. Very clear. He's asserting his sovereignty over every aspect of man's life. Now, after a while, the Israelites did not do this. Maybe they reasoned something like this. We've had a great crop here in the sixth year, but, you know, the more I think of it, this is really an archaic and outmoded uh, kind of an approach to things. I mean, really, when you stop and think of it, uh, you know, if I plant this, it's going to come up, and I'm going to give my tithes to God and money to the church, and uh, I can give to the poor, and I will have extra for my old age. And it just makes no sense to let this land. I think I'm going to do it and see what happens. 
And you know what they did? They planted the land and nothing happened. And then they planted it again. And they went on like that 490 years, receiving individual effects of the curse. I'm sure sickness increased. I'm sure sin increased. I'm sure rebellion among children increased. All kinds of terrible things increased. But the land, it brought forth, and they had famines and pestilences. And so, but, but here they were going along until a certain period of life, and then God casts them out of the land and takes them up into Babylon and scatters them all over that part of the area. And he said, this land shall lie here for 70 years until it has been made up. The rest which I commanded for the land, it will lie fallow. And then I will bring you back after that time and establish you in your land again. See, once again, asserting his authority over that land. We simply cannot reject or go against the authority of God in these areas. See, there we must submit ourselves to sovereignty. Now, notice what they did, though. Though the people who did it did not get the immediate and full effect of the curse, they put it on these families out here who 70 years were slaves in Babylon as a result of that. See, many times what we do will be seen in our children and our children's children under the third and the fourth generation, either good or bad. If it's good, wow. If it's bad, see, that type of thing. All right, now, Malachi, the same thing. He's speaking to the Jews here. They want to know certain things, and he said, You have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Now, that's an interesting kind of a statement. If you'd like to turn to Malachi, the third chapter here. And once again, dealing with this same area of sovereignty. See, that's the thing that we have to understand. He's dealing with this. Third chapter and uh, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, as my sovereignty, I've issued my statutes, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. As a matter of fact, this area of contending against God, I'll deal with this, this area of contending against God in the areas of money is really to say God has no right to tell me what to do with any part of my money. God has no right to tell me what to do with any part of my life. God has no right to tell me what to do with my house, my land, my car, my wife, my husband, my children, my... In other words, we reject God's sovereignty. God says, I make statements and you can agree to do it or not to do it. If you do it, you are submitting to my sovereignty. If you resist it, you're rejecting my sovereignty. So then he contends with the nation of Israel. He says, you're robbing me, even the whole nation of you. How are we robbing you in tithes and offerings? Then he goes on to explain this to them. And he offers them a blessing if they will bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for your sake. See, then I will. Not now, because you have rejected my authority. And see, God's cursing acts like this. God doesn't like to say, I curse you. It isn't like that. All he does is lift his hand from a part of our life. For instance, like if his hand is not over me for my health's sake, then what will happen? I will get sick. Now, I can assure you of that. If I am violating in some way his law in that area, he simply lifts his hand. I have forced that hand back. The same thing in, in money. If I insist on doing something contrary to him, he simply lifts his hand, and the destroyer, Satan, the robber, killer, thief, murderer, he is able then to attack me directly as a result of that. So that's how that works. Now, that's why he says, then I will rebuke. So all he comes down to the devourer, get away. And the blessing is back there again. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, 
so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for you shall be a delightsome land, says the Lord. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, where have we spoken against thee? You have said it is vain to serve God. In other words, doing it God's way doesn't really pay off. What profit is it that we have kept this charge and that we have walked mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness, see, this is what the Christians are saying. Well, the wicked, look at what they get. And they get all these, remember David in the 37th Psalm? Well, the wicked are even built up. No bands in their death. They get all these, and how come? Said, then I went into the house of God and I understood their end. Said, then I said, oh my God. Like a dumb beast I was before you making all these noises. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So then we get ourselves down here to the end of this message. And here it is. I strove in every way that I know. I prayed. I fasted. I cried out. I did good works. I did everything under heaven to, quote, make God bless me. And God never did. I would get a little bit, and then boom. And then boom, boom. Boom. So nothing ever really worked in my life. There was no real joy, no real happiness, no real contentment. Like a moment of like a little respite, but then back into it again. Until, I'll tell you the until, until I said, God, what you tell me to do, I will do. You have the right to tell me how long I'll live. You have the right to tell me what city I'll live in. You have the right to tell me who I will marry. You have the right to send me whatever children you wish to send to me. They are your gift to me, Lord, and I'm going to treat them that way. You have the right to... See, I began to state these things very systematically to God, and wherever I found myself contending against God, I stopped contending against God, and from that point on, I tell you, the blessing of God began to emerge in my life, and it has never stopped until this day. Now, I want every one of you here to have that continuing blessing of God. If there's some place in your life that there's a part where you're saying, I have the right here. Oh, this is my area. I, see, let go immediately. Admit that God is sovereign in every area of your life. You are a tenant on this earth. You are a sojourner. You are his creation. He owns you. He owns everything that you have. Submit it to him. Say, Lord, it all belongs to you. And all I want you to do ever is tell me what to do, and I will do it, even up to my life. Amen? Hallelujah. See, and if you do that, you'll be set free. Now, if you can get this part right, the rest of it that I'm going to preach in the weeks to come will be a joy to listen to. You'll delight in it because you'll see how the blessing of God can be turned loose in your life and how the cursing can be avoided. And see, that's all it takes. Once I've got the sovereignty right, once I'm here for His glory and His glory alone, once I'm here to exalt Him and no other purpose, and I know that and everything belongs to Him and nothing belongs to me, I'm His servant, then over here, it's very simple to avoid the cursing. I just don't want to do those things anymore. And very simple to obtain the blessing because that's exactly what I wish to do. God says, do this and be blessed. I say, Lord, I would love to do what you want me to do. See, David the king, I have installed my king on Mount Zion. He is my king. And I follow him. And God lifted up this shepherd boy up to the heights and maintained. Then when he sinned, 
down, he went until he repented, and then God raised him. And he is still remembered in Israel as the great king. He's remembered among us Christians as the great king, the great man who submitted to the sovereignty of God. Hallelujah. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer, shall we? And this is the question I'm going to ask you now. I ask how many of you here today have heard this message? You've already prayed a prayer, sort of. But I want a clear, visible symbol to God. Lord, I submit myself to your sovereignty. You are king, Lord. I am a tenant. I am a sojourner. My life belongs to you. Everything that I have or am or ever will be is totally yours, O God. And I want you to reveal your life to me and reveal your plan to me. Because I want to follow that plan. If you believe that, I want you to stand up right now before the Lord. Gracious God, these that are standing have said one thing to you. Now, Lord, I don't know if they fully understand what they've said, but I know by your grace that isn't the important thing. The important thing is that they've made this move from a heart that has been moved by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, if they don't understand fully, I know by your Holy Spirit you will teach them. By the counselors and the ones that you send to them to teach them the Word of God, they will grasp it piece by piece how to live out that sovereignty relationship. You're king, O oh Lord. Father, we've grown up in a, a democracy where we can denounce the president and we can denounce the senate and we can denounce the mayor and we can denounce everybody. And that's called freedom. But Lord, let us make very sure we never denounce you, we never contend with you, and we never argue with you. You are king, O oh Lord. And Father, I pray that we also get a healthy respect for those you placed in authority over us. You told us not to carry on that way, not to contemn a ruler. And Father, help us to learn that too, because those powers are established by you. And Father, help us to walk in that gentle way. Help us to walk in that submitted way. Help us to walk as we really are subjects of your great kingdom, Lord. And we're here to establish your kingdom. We're here to let people know in this city and all over the world that, Lord, we are submitted men to your kingdom, to your rule. Bless now, Father, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name, and I'd like every one of you to say a word that means so be it. Say amen in a good, loud way. Amen. Let's bow our heads now in a word of prayer and ask God to bless. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that unique blessing rests now upon the hearts and the minds of your people. Father, I'm not going to be here for a time, but this isn't my word, it's your word. But I pray that it sinks in deeply. They begin practicing these things, begin understanding who you are and what you are, and very formally, Lord, carry out what you are speaking here. Grant this, precious Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over the years, I have attained a measure of success, which I believe would have been far greater had I began practicing these things when I was a young man. I did not practice them because of two reasons. Number one, I didn't know about them, and number two, I was filled with pride and a very great estimate of myself, that I really pretty well knew how the world was put together, and I knew how to be a success, so I was very caught up with carrying out my own plans for life. Now, that would take until I was over 40 years of age before I finally came to a place of thorough understanding that it's in man's heart to plan but the disposition of it is in the hand of God. So I 
therefore changed my ideas of planning and said, I will first of all find out what God's plan is, and then I will adopt that for myself. And that will be my plan, and I will execute that plan to the best of my ability still, always knowing that it is God's will that determines the going of it or the coming of it. So I'm going to draw for you, I'm going to read from last week's message, two conclusions that were drawn, a series of conclusions. Number one, God very carefully states in many ways, and we'll bring some scriptures out indicating that idea again today, everything is God's. And if you prosper in any way, it will be because God releases those things that are his into your hand. All right, so everything is God. He makes this statement again and again. And many times Christians refer to it as something as mine. And unfortunately, if they were merely identifying that they had possession of it, that would be okay to say that, like, I manage this or I'm in charge of it. But in their hearts, they assume ownership. This is mine. And I do with it as I see fit. See, the minute you transfer from that, I am a manager, I am a tenant, God is the owner. The minute you transfer from that, you put yourself in serious jeopardy. God cannot allow his sovereignty to be challenged. So we have to be very careful how we think about our possessions, our children, our families, our mates, everything in this life. It is his. It is never ours. It still remains his. For we are never owners of anything but only tenants and sojourners. And that's the word that God uses. You, he said, are tenants. A tenant never owns, merely pays rent. Passing through. God will not allow infringement of his sovereignty to go unchallenged. He is gracious and slow to bring judgment. See, and many times the Bible says, because God does not execute judgment speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are fully set in themselves to do evil. In other words, they violate God's sovereignty, sometimes blatantly, and God does not kill them. So then, I can get away with it. See, and they harden themselves, and pretty soon they're just racing along some pathway that leads to certain ruin. But God is slow, and he keeps dealing and dealing and dealing. Now, anywhere along the line, if they stop, they're still wrong that they've done, and we'll be punished for the wrong we've done, but we can avoid total disaster. But if we don't stop, then judgment comes. And I read Colossians 1.25, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he has done, and there is no respected persons with God, no partiality. All right. Then I read to you the law of blessing and cursing. The law of blessing and cursing is part of the law of judgment. God must bring judgment, good or bad. Blessing comes on the one who submits to God's sovereignty and follows his ways. But the fullness of the blessing may not be seen until the succeeding generations, even the third and the fourth. In other words, if I lay a right foundation in my children and they take it, they can be greater than I ever was. See, now, I cannot be greater than Christ who teaches me. That's absolutely. My only desire is to be like Christ. But I tell you, your children can be greater than you if you impart to them the right things and then they take those things, walk with them, and even learn more. See, so the next generation can rise, third and fourth, so forth. Each generation can be greater than the one before it if they walk in God's ways. So blessing comes on the ones, but it may not be seen in the third and fourth generation. Cursing comes on the one who rejects God's sovereignty and refuses his ways, but the full outworking of a curse may not be seen until succeeding generations appear. In other words, if I impart into my children selfishness, self-will, pride, whatever it is that are contrary to God, and they pick that up from me, they may be worse than I ever was unless I repent begin to turn, and hopefully then they can be turned so it won't be so bad. Now, the succeeding generations, however, can break the curse. 
but they must break it by confession, faith, and persistent action to establish God's sovereignty and ways in them. So now they can break it any time. For instance, my parents did not know the Lord, but that line of cursing which could have come on me, I could have been harder, and then to my children even harder, and then, but because God spoke to me and somehow I heard it. Now I take no credit for that. I just simply say I heard it. Then began to live for Him, even though for many years I didn't really live for Him, but finally when I was 40, I caught hold of it, rejected those ways, began to practice vigorously the ways of the Lord, and I believe now that curse has been broken as far as extending it again and again. Now it's turning and coming back the other way. All right, now it's very important that you understand that, otherwise you will go through life with no understanding of what's going on in your life. Well, well, something happened to me, and this happened to me, and I don't know why it happens, all chance. There is no chance in this world. We're walking by an ordered universe, which we can be a part of that good order or a part of the bad order. Now, so appropriating John 3, 2 today. Brethren, I wish above all things that you may prosper. Here's God's will for us. God is a God of blessing. May prosper, be in health, even as your soul is prospering. Now, I'm going to read from Isaiah, the 37th chapter, and I'm going to read it out of the Living Bible, and I wish you would just listen. Here was a king, King Sennacherib of Assyria, a king that did not know God, filled with pride, did not follow his laws or his ways, and he was very lifted up with his, his power. I'm going to read this. Sennacherib now is speaking to King Hezekiah, king of Israel. It's the 37th chapter, but I wish you'd just listen to it here, please. Don't let this God, Sennacherib now is making a speech. Don't let this God you trust fool you by promising that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. Just remember what has happened wherever the kings of Assyria have gone. For they have crushed everyone who has opposed them. Do you think you will be any different? Did their God save the cities of Gozan, Haran, or Rezeph, or the people of Eden, or Telassar? No, the Assyrian kings completely destroyed them, and then he goes on raging more. Now remember, it sounds like he's trying to put fear into Hezekiah and the people of Israel, which he was, Jerusalem. But what he was really doing is, we'll see later on, God said, you are raging against me. You are saying, I am greater than God. I will do as I please. I know what I'm doing. I will... All right, now, Hezekiah, as soon as he heard this, verse 14, as soon as King Hezekiah had read the letter, he went over to the temple and spread it out before the Lord and prayed, saying, O Lord, Almighty God of Israel, enthroned between the guardian angels that cherubim, you alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone made heaven and earth. Now notice, he is submitting to the sovereignty of God. Lord, what does he say? Is this man mad? He is saying, but I know who you are. You own everything, Lord, and I am here merely as your servant. Now, this is the basic. Now, see, many times our prayers are based on, oh, Lord, give me this, oh, Lord, give me this. Wait, where am I in relationship to his sovereignty? How does this thing fit in that I'm asking for? How does it fit into his plan for my life? What is it that God wants? See, there's where we ought to be lining up our prayers. And people, if you want prayers answered... That's the way to pray. Approach God as a submitted person, totally under his sovereign reign, walking under the lordship of Jesus Christ, following out the plan of God for your life, and then I tell you, he will give you the desires of your heart. See, it's very important. Now, Hezekiah understood this, and this is the way he's praying. Listen as I plead. See me as I pray. Look at this letter from King Sennacherib, for he has mocked the living God it is true, O Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all those nations, just as the letter says. 
and thrown their gods into the fire. For they weren't gods at all, but made from wood and stone carved by men. Of course the Assyrians could destroy them. O Lord our God, save us so that all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you are God and you alone. Now, do you notice the complete difference in one man, I will do this and I... The other man, you are God. And do this, O God, not for my sake. Don't save me. Maybe I die, maybe I... That's not the point. But do it that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God and you alone. See, Lordship of Jesus Christ, right? Exalt him. All right, now. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent this message to King Hezekiah. The Lord God of Israel says, This is my answer to your prayer against Sennacherib, Assyria's king. The Lord says to him, My people. And then he goes on to speak here a message to them. Now I'm going to jump down a ways, verse 23. Who is it you scoffed against and mocked? Whom did you revile? At whom did you direct your violence and pride? It was against the Holy One of Israel. You have sent your messengers to mock the Lord. You boast, I came with a mighty army against the nations of the West. I cut down the tallest cedars and choicest cypress trees. I conquered their highest mountains and destroyed the thickest forests. You boast of wells you've dug in many a conquered land, and Egypt with all its armies is no obstacle to you. Now listen to this next part. He's referring, this is what you said? Let me tell you something now, he says. But do you not know that it was I who decided all of this long ago? That it was I who gave you all this power from ancient times? See, not you, Sennacherib. I gave it to you. I have caused all this to happen as I planned that you should crush the walled cities and into ruined heaps. In other words, those nations were ripe for judgment, and he raised up a rod of judgment. But Sennacherib got caught up with his own pride. That's why their people had so little power. They were such an easy prey for you. They were as helpless as the grass, as tender plants you trampled down beneath your feet, as grass upon the housetops, burnt yellow with the sun. But I know you well, your comings and goings and all you do, and the way you have raged against me. See, he didn't say, I hear what you're saying against Hezekiah, and I hear what you're saying against I hear... No, he said, this is strictly now between you and me. You haven't just said in an ordinary way, you have challenged my place in this kingdom. Because of your anger against the Lord, I heard it all. I have put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth and led you back to your own land by the same road which you came. That night the angel of the Lord went out to the camp of the Assyrians and killed 185,000 soldiers. When the living wakened the next morning, all these lay dead before them. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, returned to his own country, to Nineveh, and one day while he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his gods, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezer, killed him with their swords, and they escaped in the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon became king in his stead. Now, what is the message that God is trying to give to us here? See, whether or not the person is a Christian, whether or not the person is a follower of God, whether or not the person has a knowledge of God, whether he's a rank heathen, God is still saying, whatever you do or however you rage, I am still God and I am moving in my plan to bring this world to a culmination. See, God is sovereign. Now, if we can rest in that, what a place of prayer it gives us. What a place of peace. See, God tells me he owns me. And I say, thank you, Lord. Somebody owns me. Somebody's going to take care of me. My parts are wearing out. My brain is coming to a standstill. My blood is slowing down. But I'm going to live forever. 
because you own me, Lord, and you're my Lord, and you're my... See? Now that puts us in a completely different place. Now then, many Christians, well, all Christians would do this, they come to a place where they accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, their place in heaven is secured. But many Christians, most Christians, nearly all Christians, do not walk out the way of life on this earth, and therefore their place in this earth is not secured, and is filled with all kinds of unneeded pains and heartaches and wrecks and failures and ruin comes to them because they think just accepting Jesus, that's it. But they do not go to the Word of God and say, now as a Christian, how do I walk? How do I speak to this world by my actions that I am a man under authority, I believe in the sovereignty of God, and I do all these things at God's hand and nothing that is not at His hand? In other words, I am a servant of the Almighty God. I walk in His ways. All right, now, that's what we're aiming at here today. I'm not bringing a question here about whether you're going to heaven or not. Thank God we are, because we receive Jesus Christ. But what I am talking about is the testimony we're going to have on this earth, that it should be a marvelous testimony so that other generations are going to be affected, other lands are going to be affected, people's lives are going to be transformed way far removed from us just by hearing about the testimony of God. That's what He wants to see done. All right, now... Then the first thing you're going to have to understand here is that curses exist in this world. It's not they're going to exist. They can do that too. I mean, God can put a special curse on a situation or lift his hand from a situation, which is normally what a curse is. But curses exist because of Adam's sin and others possibly. That is, the people in Noah's day, I think something was added to the, the pressure of the earth at that time. And it speaks about the earth being divided in the days of Peleg, I think something happened there of a very destructive nature. And then the confusion of tongues and the Tower of Babel, that has created divisions of nations which they've been warring against each other, cultural differences and so forth, which have created great suspicions among nations and has kept us apart all of this time. All right, so these are curses that exist upon the earth. And part of them, I'd like you just to hear one of them read now so you understand where some of this thing comes from. Then to Adam he said, this is the third chapter of the book of Genesis, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you, because of this sin. Now remember, not just cursed when you plant seeds, Adam, but cursed to who? All the human race would feel the results of this curse. That's what I mean about a curse sometimes doesn't fully manifest itself until generations down the line. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. By that he spoke death to him, so you are going to die, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now that is a curse. That's why I say, here I am a Christian, I'm living for God, but you know what happens if the Lord does not come soon enough? I'm going to die. That's still part of Adam's curse. He released that curse, and that curse is ended. Death shall not be overcome until the Lord himself shall return. And then that final enemy shall be overcome, and then, hallelujah, no more death. Death will be known no more. All right. So curses exist. Now, nobody, none, no one, would ever truly prosper. That is spirit, soul, body, mind, emotions, family, materially. See, I'm talking about total prosperity. The Bible speaks about no one would ever truly prosper in a complete way without God powerfully intervening to overcome for us 
the effect of curses already in existence. We're not talking about curses that could come from other sources. We're talking about curses already in existence would be powerful enough against most people to break them at some point, and they would not be able to rise up above the pressure of those curses. The ground bringing forth thorns and thistles, divisions of nations, and all the sin that is resulting in the world today. All right. Perhaps the greatest curse is Satan's freedom to roam on the earth and deceive and destroy under the opening that sin gives to Satan. Adam opened the door. See, all has sinned and come short of the glory of God. Therefore, Satan is roaming on the earth and his demonic forces and bringing forth the, the destruction that he brings forth. And the sin, of course, is the refusal to submit to the sovereignty of God in every area of life. You cannot be deceived by the devil if you are a truly submitted person. cannot be done. You simply cannot be deceived by the devil. You'll be deceived by the devil in any area of your life, however, that you have seized the sovereignty from God. You can't really do that, but I mean your mind, you know, I know what I'm doing and I'm going to, and at that point you become totally open to deception of all kinds. Your conscience is seared and you begin to move in those areas that bring destruction. Now, how do we overcome the curses? First of all, by a close relationship to God. Now, I think it's very important to understand it. The first great commandment, the Lord, person came to him and said, what's the great commandment? You know, the thing was, that, that don't uh, have any other gods before me, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie. No, he said the first and great commandment is love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And then Jesus added another one to it and love your neighbor as yourself. See, because the Bible says we do that, we fulfill the law. So what we're really saying, the first understanding that we have to have is relationship to God. So it is vitally important with me. That's why prayer is so important. That's why reading the Bible is so important. That's why worship is so important. We'll go on to some of these things in later messages. I'm just kind of giving you still a basic outline here. But that's why it is so important for me to come not and pray like Oh, Lord, I pray that you do this and this and this and this and this, and then I pray for this and this and this, and I pray for this and this. In Jesus' name, amen. That's not a relationship. See, I would really have trouble if my wife came to me as soon as I get home tonight. Oh, my husband, I'm glad you're home. I want this and this and this done, and this and this and this and this and this and this and this. Amen. And then she's gone. I get that all day at work. I'd like a little love here. See, that's right. I'd like a little love here. I want to be hugged. I want my wife to say, I missed you. I want to be with you. I want to talk to you. I want to hear you speak to me. I want to hear you. I want relationship. See, now out of relationship comes faith, hope, and love. These three and the greatest of these, once again, is love. Then that love can extend. This produces a life of faith, hope, and love toward everyone. Second part of overcoming the curses, keep his word. If you love me, see, out of love again, relationship, that's fundamental. Out of it comes love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments or keep my word. And it also speaks about overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the what? Word of our testimony. So this is our testimony. We make it our own and we speak the testimony of the great things that God has done. And uh, they love not their lives to the death. Not important whether we live or die. It's important that we glorify God. All right. Sovereignty covers four basic areas. The spiritual. Oh, there's a dealing that God has for us here, and I'll speak about that. The soulish. The physical and the material. Keep in mind these things. Sovereignty covers four areas where God says in our lives, I want you to do this to indicate my sovereignty here, this indicates my sovereignty here, this indicates my sovereignty here, this indicates my sovereignty here. See? So these four areas, God exerts sovereignty over. Now, how do we submit in these four areas? Number one, the spiritual. We repent to God and receive Jesus as Lord, not as Savior. Lord. 
See? And I say in the area of my spirit, Jesus Christ is Lord, and I repent to him for all the sins I've committed against God, and I will follow him. He is my captain. All right. Second, soulish. Worship and submission in all things. That's why in virtually every church, even though they might have forgot the reason for it, the church will start out with worship. Let us arise and worship God. You know what we're saying when we worship God? God, we are dependent upon you for all things. God, we praise you as Lord of the universe. Oh, Lord, we lift up our... And our emotional aspects, the soulish aspect of us, begins to come under. Do you remember how I used to preach years ago? Our soul is like a jungle chimpanzee. Just woo, 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 woo. See, like this. And God's saying, I don't care how you came in here, give your soul now to me and worship. See, I will worship the Lord. I will praise the Lord. And so forth and so on. Third thing, physical, glorify God in your body, which is God's. See, again, sovereignty. So what is the purpose of my body? To glorify God with my body. Remember, he was contending with those who were going up to temple prostitutes, and he said, what? Shall I take the temple of God and join it with a prostitute? He was like to him, this is, your body belongs to God. Therefore, he said, your body is God's, therefore glorify him in your body. See, that's a very important thing, that every aspect of my body belongs to God. So this is God's. This is God's. What's in it is God's. And what it will be is God's. Right, now, that's a very important thing to understand and grasp. The fourth thing is material. And how do I do that? I overcome the curse with tithing and offerings. And many people don't understand that. They, well, that's, uh, that's another time, or that's, uh, that you don't understand my problem. I do understand your problem. I've been there. And I'll tell you about that today. As a matter of fact, I will concentrate a little bit on the material today, because you need to understand that. There was a time in my life I didn't have two pennies to rub together, or any ability to take care of my family. And I'll tell you, terrible poverty plagued me and dogged me. The other day, I was able to give a check for $6,500 to the church, and I've given some pretty good-sized ones before that. Now, what are you talking about? You gave a check for six? Yes. Now, what did that? What did it coming from the place where I can't have two pennies to rub together and I don't know where the next meal is coming from to where I can be a blessing to many people? I will tell you what did it. I stopped at some point and said, God, from now on in every area of my life, you are sovereign. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. And he said, then I want you to do this and you do this and you do this and you do this and you do this. Said, yes, Lord. Whatever you say. I'll do it. What plans do you have for my life? Lord, none except you give me one. I don't have any plans. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not doing anything. I don't want to do anything. I tell people in prayer, I don't have any desires. What do you want God to do? What do you want to do, God? Different thing altogether, see. Okay. Now, producing abundance. How do we go about that? Number one, recognizing God's ownership of all things and his right to do as he pleases with those things. We are his faithful stewards or managers and I'm not going to go into that too much here because I've repeated it on several occasions in my messages to you. But I am going to read to show you how God deals with certain areas and he expects us to maintain it. Now I'm turning to the book of Leviticus, the 25th chapter. If any of you would like to look at that, I think there would be some instructive things there for you. I'll just start reading. Verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Now notice how he's saying, see, you don't own this land. I'm giving it to you. I cast those out who were here before you. Now I've let you come in here, and here's how you will stay, and here's how you will prosper. It shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall sow your fields. 
and prune your vineyard and gather its crop. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath of the Lord. You shall not sow your field, nor prune your vineyard. Your harvest after growth you shall not reap. In other words, don't go through there and take it away. Your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year. And all of you shall have the Sabbath price of land for food. Yourself, your male and female slaves, your hired man, the foreign resident, and those who live as aliens among you. King James says the poor. Even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all the crops to eat. You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years, and then he talks about the year of Jubilee. Now, I'm going to skip through that and drop down to 17, 18, and 19. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And you shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments, so as to carry them out that you may live securely on the land. Then the land will produce, see now we're talking about overcoming the curse, already the devourer is there, thorns and thistles are there, but here's what he says, and thus you shall observe my statutes, keep my judgments, carry them out, that you may live securely on the land, none will ever dispossess you, it's my land, I'll protect you. Verse 19, then the land will yield its produce so that you can eat your fill and live securely on it. But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow and gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when the crop comes in. I will so order my, don't you worry, see, my blessings will be there. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, and you are but aliens and sojourners with me. See, now, if we can recognize that, I'm a sojourner, I'm a tenant, the land is mine, the house I live in, whose house is that? Would you say it for me? The house I live in, whose house is it? That's God's house. See? Well, I'll do this, and I think I'll do that, I think God... Lord, what use do you have for this house? What purpose do you have for this house? And then I must live there according to his plan for that house. Whatever property I have, it belongs to him. All right. Now, Haggai is one of the minor prophets, but he's not very minor. I'll tell you that. First chapter. Now God is speaking to them here through the prophet. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, the time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, see, they made a judgment. He had told them, build the house of God. Plant my kingdom. Establish my... He's told them this, like he's telling us. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Make sure that you are witnesses to me. Make sure that you are... Well, we've been thinking this over, and the time is not yet come that we should be a witness in Eureka. The time has not yet come that we should build the house of God. Time is not yet... See, and we start reasoning against God's plan for our lives. They say the time has not come. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? So here was the house of God, broken down from prior times, not maintained properly, and yet they were fixing up their own houses and just, well, just going to it and all kinds of wonderful things were taking place while the house of God was lying desolate. All right, now here's what happened, the result of it. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much but harvest little. All right, here's the curse working. See, God merely lifts his hand, and then this earth, which is already cursed, the thorns come up, the thistles come up, the pestilence comes against the disease hits, and you have sown much, but bring in little. 
There is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put it into a purse with holes. Now, have you ever felt that way with your money? I earn this money and I think it was drained out someplace. Now, look carefully to see that your life is in divine order. You may be having a purse with holes. And it may be, in fact, draining out from you. Say, you put it into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild a temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. And when you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house which lies desolate, while each one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I call for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Everything you do doesn't work. Nothing works. Just all fouls up again and again. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them and the people showed reverence for God and Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God and so forth, and then the blessing began to return to their lives. Now, you see, they had reasoned against God. You know, and many times people, oh, well, you're asking for money to build the church, and I mean, not money for paint, and money for this, money, 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 money. I've got money. I need, I'm, I'm remodeling my house, and I, I'm, I have to have a new car, and I, I really need to beware. Make sure the house of God is built. Make sure the house of God is a place that will glorify God. Make sure it's not some run-down, fallen-down, broken-down place. Well, I can't work on that place. I'm busy. I, if you only knew how busy I was, you would know. Don't do that. See, that's what God is saying here. That's what they said. They run to their sealed houses, their panel houses. God said, you let my house lie waste. Now, you stop what you're doing. Go up to the mountains. Get these things. Build God's house. Establish my kingdom. Make sure that churches are planted. Make sure that missionaries are taken care of. Make sure that money is given so that this... Word will go out to the ends of the earth. Then, says God, I will bless you. And your bag with holes will get sewed up, and all the rest of the things will be taken care of. See, then God says, Behold, I am with you. Now, once God is with you, I will tell you, you will prosper in whatever you set your hand to do. Remember what he said about Joshua? Obey my word, and then you will prosper in everything you do. Everything you do. See, I have a very rigid mentality when it comes to sovereignty with God. I submit myself. See, and the many times I've looked at something, well, I could sure use that. Get away, you devil. Here, God, yours. See? And the result is, I have, and my wife has prospered. That's a basic lesson to be learned there. Turn with me now to Malachi 3, 6 to 18. Once again, this has to do with overcoming a curse. See, a curse already exists. Now, sometimes a curse can be added to that and makes it even worse. In this case, I think it was added to it, and then the pressure mounts up in an even greater way. Right, so here we are, Malachi, the third chapter, and this is verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. 
Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. He had made a covenant with Abraham, and he said, I will establish your posterity forever. So God didn't change, but they had changed from what Abraham was doing. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Then he asked him a question. Will a man rob God? God forbid! No! Well, will a man rob God? The question. But you say, how have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. You have robbed God. See? Well, I don't pay tithes, or I believe, uh, or I think this, right? See, let's transfer the wording. Well, I don't think the house of God has to be built up. My house, my, my, my future, my... Uh, consider your ways. You have planted much, but you reap little. You worked hard, but I've blown on it, and it's gone. You have a bag with holes, and your wages fall out, and nothing is left for you, and, see, or consider your ways. All right, now, and I say to anyone who is not tithing, consider carefully your ways. You are really opening a door for a curse to manifest itself, not always financially, immediately, but in future generations, you're setting a pattern for children to follow, which will set them up for failure all down the line. Don't do that. Make sure you pay your tithe. Very important. And the word here is pay, not give offerings of your tithes. Tithing is not offering. It has nothing to do with an offering at all. It's like land rent. We are tenants, God says. Then I say, what's the rent? Ten percent of all your increase. I give it to him. Never argue about it. I did argue with it. And interestingly enough, all the time I argued about it, I had a bag with holes. Now, I don't have a bag with holes. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house. And test me now in this. Now, the Lord does not deal with offerings here. He stops. He deals only with the tithing, because there was something else they were not doing. They were not taking care of the priests. They were not taking care of the ministry. And God makes it very clear they to preach the gospel should get their living from the gospel. See, it's very important that the people who are ministered to, and the New Testament says exactly the same thing, the people who are ministered to are required by God to take care of those who do the ministering to them. See, make sure you communicate and take care of them. Very careful to do that. All right, now, so the tithing belongs to the church to which you attend. Tithing is not a missionary offering. It's not uh, uh, send it over here and put it over here and send it to the television broadcast. It has one place. When I profited from the sale of my house, I wrote a check for the tithe, gave it to Jim Moore, who gave it to Martha, who deposited it in this church. See, there's one thing God's made clear. If I took that money and sent it over there, God would say, fine, that's a nice offering, but where's your tithe? Well, I just paid it. No, you did not. Your tithe belongs here. It's very clear, so I always put it right there. I pay three times tithe. See, but the tithe goes here. Then a second tithe I count as a missionary offering. That's sent overseas. And a third tithe I give to the international work. But my tithe goes here. See, it's very clear in my mind. Never put it any other place. Because it's unscriptural. It's ungodly. It's not proper. So there may be food in my house. See, food is the word. Those priests had to eat. And if they didn't eat, you know what they did? They abandoned the work of God and went out in the fields and started farming and taking jobs. And the next thing, the house of God fell on hard times. There must be food in my house, he said. You must take care of those ministers. All right. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer. See, it's like when God's hand was lifted off the nation, here's the devourers already, they're just like this, ready to go. See, I mean, 
the insects are ready to eat your crops. I mean, look at it from an agricultural point of view. The insects are ready to eat the crops. The thorns and thistles are ready to spring up. Disease is ready to attack the plants. I mean, that, they're just in the world. See, our plant diseases in the world. They're in the world all the time. Our insects in the world. See, our thorns and thistles in the ground, yes. Now, if God lifts his hand, boom, see, and they're right on those things. And then these terrible things begin to take place. Now, it turns us round here, though, and says, but I then will rebuke the devourer for you, so it will not destroy the fruits of your ground. Now I plant, and it begins to grow. Nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed, and you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Now, here's what they spoke. You have said it is vain to serve God. See, it's always a lack of faith that causes us not to do what God says. God says, if you do this, here's what I'll do. And this is so marvelous that how can anybody, if they really believe it, not do it? God says, I'll rebuke the devourer. Your plants will grow. Your vines will burst out with new wine. This will happen. That will happen. That. The guy says, I believe every word of it. Well, then why don't you tithe? Well, I need it over here because I have to pay my... Man, if you've got bills you can't pay, you know what I would do? I'd make sure I paid my tithe so God would bless me. But if we don't believe that... We'll go pay this and not that. And the result of it is that we lose out the blessings of God. Now, when I was down there, only had two pennies to rub together. Well, I didn't have two pennies to rub together. Desperate. I didn't believe in tithing. And then I came and said, it can't hurt. I'm going to try it. Well, I want to tell you, from that time on, the blessing of God began to be upon my life. All right. Now, you have said it is vain to serve God. For what profit is it that we have kept this charge? That we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the arrogant blessed... Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and for those who esteem his name, and they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, and so forth and so on. Now, this opens the door so that God's hand comes down over us as a hedge, and the curse cannot work in our lives anymore. Many people never get beyond the fact that the curse is working very fully and freely in their life and everything goes wrong. I've heard people make statements like this. Every time I get somebody, something goes wrong. Some stupid, unexpected. Anyone ever say that here? No, I just wonder if anyone ever said it. Like that. See? Of course, you didn't say it like that. You said it like, it is a strange and marvelous thing that whenever I am blessed with the coin of the realm, things happen to me. Is that how you said it? You know what God is saying? Stop. How much of a pounding on the head do you have to get? There's a book I read along. It said a whack on the side of the head. That's what many people need. Like, oh, that's what's wrong. I will now. That's what we need. That's what this message is about. It's a whack on the side of the head. Whack. Right. Now, to prosper abundantly, though, takes something more than tithing. See, that's why it says tithes and offerings. Now, let me explain to you the law of offerings. Offerings are a very powerful way to opening up God's blessing. I'm going to read here from 2 Corinthians. You've heard me read from it before, but I want you just to listen to it now. This is not tithing he's talking about here. This is strictly an offering. And this is 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. He's talking about giving money to the poor. Take care of the poor, God says, and I will do this and this. But remember this, if you give little, you will get little. Now, he's talking about the law of sowing and reaping, the law of abundant harvest. How do you get an abundant harvest? 
put lots of seed in the ground, take care of them. That's how you do it. Make sure you put all the seed in the ground you can. In other words, make sure it's working for you. This law must work, and you must work the law. The law does not work itself. You must work it. If you have seed in the barn, and you don't pick that seed in the barn up and take it out to the field, plow the ground, and drop it in there and start watering it, God's law of increase will not work. See, one plants, one waters, but what happens now? God gives the increase. Right? You have to understand that law. Now you must plant in order to get that. You must water to get that. But remember this, if you give little, you will get little. And of course that's true. If you plant two seeds in the ground, even if they were a hundredfold seeds, you still only have uh, 200 seeds. Well, they can't even hardly eat one, one or two good meals for a family. That wouldn't do it. But remember this, if you give little, you get little. A farmer who plants just a few seeds will get only a small crop. But if he plants much, he will reap much. Everyone must make up his own mind how much he should give. Don't force anyone to give any more than he really wants to, for cheerful givers are the ones God prizes. God is able to make it up to you by giving you everything you need and more, so there will not only be enough for your own needs, but plenty left over to give joyfully to others. It is as the scriptures say, the godly man gives generously to the poor, his good deeds will be an honor to him forever. For God who gives seed to the farmer to plant, and later on good crops to harvest and eat, will give you more and more seed to plant, and will make it grow so that you can give away more and more fruit from your harvest. Now, goes on to say, and then he talks about the poor people that you bless will begin praying for you, and they will mount up with thanksgiving to God, and that will redound to your account, and so forth, and so on. It's a whole wonderful thing. Now, the second law, if you wish to prosper, is the law of investing in God's work. See, we're talking about giving to the poor here. This is not investing in God's work directly or per se. Now we're talking about, see, tithing is like to take care of the ministers and the, the church situation here. But now we're talking about making the work grow. So we're going to invest in it. Now, a part of the reason why I've been successful financially is I discovered the law of investing. I discovered the law of investing in the work of God and the law of investing the money properly so it would grow. See, two things. One, I must give it in a way so that God will be working here and do it here so that God will be working here. So both things it will grow in. All right, now the law of investing is simply this. I'm going to read to you from Philippians, the fourth chapter. And all of these chapters, by the way, you should know them, and you should begin to work with them, understand what their message is, and make sure that you're operating in that realm. Philippians, the fourth chapter, 14th verse. Now, what they had done is this church had searched out Paul. He was on a trip. He was going through some pretty hard times. And this church uniquely took up an offering for him, a very large offering, searched him out, and gave it to him that he could continue his work. He says, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. What he had said before is, I'm not moved by these things. Paul would keep right on preaching until he starved to death, although God would never let him starve. But that was his heart. But nevertheless, they said, but Paul, you're not going to starve. We're going to invest in your work. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. Now, no wonder this church, Philippine church, was so blessed. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. In other words, I urge you to give to the work of God, to invest in the work of God, that it might increase to your account, so that you will have even more, so it increases even more. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You see that one followed 
hot on the heels of the other. You gave to me, now my God shall meet your needs very powerfully here. And then the last thing, and I could give you examples of that, and I'm going to just throw them out here for you to think about. Number one, Peter put his ship at the Lord Jesus' disposal. So he cast out a little bit and he preached the gospel to the people on shore. And then what did Jesus do for Peter? He said, launch out into the deep and put down your nets for a draught. And what happened to Peter? He ended up with a load like he had never seen before. See, great. Now, the lad with five loaves and two fishes. Hey, I'm not giving you this, Lord Jesus. I mean, no, no way, man. <laughs> the other people didn't bring food too bad. I invest my five loaves and two fishes in the work of God. Well, what are you going to eat, son? I'm not concerned. I want Jesus to have these five loaves and two fishes. What was the result? It multiplied where 5,000 men besides women and children were fed and 12 basketfuls left over. Mighty increase. He has the law of that type of sowing and reaping. The law of investing in God's work. The widow with meal and oil. Remember Elijah went to her and uh, he said, take me a little cake. Give me something to drink. She said, wow. All I have is enough for myself and my son. And then we're going to both starve and die. There's no more food. He said, go bake a cake for me first. And then we'll see what will happen. Remember, she obeyed him, baked the cake, and what happened? He said, go to your neighbors. And the oil never stopped flowing. And the meal never gave way until the famine was over and she was well out the other side. See, literally, God multiplied that by thousands of percent, this little thing that she had because she invested it in the work of God. And once again, when should you start investing in the work of God? Well, I want to tell you when I did it, I did it when I had nothing. I said, Lord, but what I've got, I'm going to do it here. And sometimes I'd give a penny. And sometimes the offering would come by and I literally was broke. I mean, flat. I had nothing. I paid my tithes. I gave what offerings I could. And here was an offering. And I had nothing. And I said, Lord, by faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm putting in hundreds of dollars in this offering today. Though nothing went out of my hand. And then God said, I'm going to bless you. And he began to do it. Now, when I get the hundreds of dollars, what do you do with them? Well, now, Lord, I understand. I know I said that, but I feel here that, uh, dear Lord, thank you, Jesus. See? And then God says, I'll multiply it even more to you. See? Now, that's God's eternal plan. And then finally, aim to glorify God in your life. If you're going to be in a business or a job, do what God says. If you're working for somebody, give it everything you got. He says, don't work for a man. If you're on a job, who do you work for? Said work for God. See, Lord, I'm here to do carpentry work today for you, Lord. Or I'm here to do bookkeeping for you, Lord Jesus. Or I'm here to do. I'm here on this job and pay me a rotten salary and a rotten boss. See, you will really be blessed in that job. You will have the privilege of drawing unemployment very shortly, because you won't be there. But I tell you, if you work for God, that boss will say, "I never saw anybody work like that in my life." Hey, man. Well, yes, sir. Uh, I want to get you trained for this job over here. Now, uh, you will move up by divine law. If you're in a business and you serve your clients with all your heart and soul, you know what? They'll spread the word. I never saw a company like that. Man, they take care of you. They really do right. They, 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 oh, man, it's just... The word will spread. We want you to do work for us. That's the law of increase. See, the law of increase is not some mysterious, hidden secret like... The law of increase is simply believing what God's word says and doing it. Remember what Jesus said? If you hear these words of mine and do them, you shall be like a wise man who built his house and then much blessing remained. I want everyone in this church to be blessed. Not a little bit, 
I want you to be blessed abundantly. I want your bags to all be sewn up by divine thread. I want your fields to bring forth. I want your jobs to multiply. I want your businesses to grow. I want you... And you know how this is going to take place? Because God is going to put a spirit of generosity on you. As a matter of fact, it's already on you because the Holy Spirit is in you. Let that spirit of generosity work. Pay your tithes. Give offerings. Think about it and say, I invest this money in your kingdom, O Lord. I am giving this to the ministry that it may grow. I am giving this that this church may be planted. I am giving this, O Lord. And I say, if you've given... Funny, when I was down in Guatemala... Carlos said to me, for every offering, because they'd hit three services, and I'd go up with everyone, they have you come up there, and i go up with everyone, and i put money in the offering. He says, man, alive. He said, you're here a few more days, you'll be totally broke. I said, in one way, that could be right. In another way, it will never happen. My God shall supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and give glory to God. Hallelujah. Let's give him a clap. You're sovereign, O Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Now, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the wonderful clarity that you've helped us with your word today, Father. I didn't know if I could explain it, and yet today I know that I have. I know that your Holy Spirit was on your people, and they grasped it. And, Lord, what I pray now is for an abundant measure of faith. Lord, they will take the word of God, and they'll say, I'm going to do it, and they start doing it, Lord. And they keep on doing it. They apply the law of perseverance to their life. And they keep on doing it, Lord, until your abundance is so great upon them that their neighbors, their friends, everyone they work with or are around, Lord, will ask them, how did this happen? And they'll be able to say, my God has done it according to his eternal word. Hallelujah. Let it be that blessing, Father. Every area of their life, Lord. So the spiritual area, the emotional area, Lord, the physical area, and the material area, shall all evidence your mighty blessing. Granted, Father, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Now say with me, Amen. 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 All right. Four or five weeks ago, last time I ministered, I ministered on the subject of sovereignty of God. I ministered uh, the week before that also on the same subject. I'd like to continue on that theme. Without understanding the sovereignty of God, clearly, the Bible becomes a babble of confusion to us. We read something, even a promise like we get from the Bible. Many people are very strong on the promises of God, which I also am. But I don't want to just be strong on the promises of God. I want to see the promises of God fulfilled in my life. So when God says, this is what I want to do in your life, then I want to see that done in my life. I want to see it fulfilled. And the problem is, with many Christians, these promises are all here, but you've heard me say many times, when a Christian has been saved about 20 years, most of them become very cynical Christians. Now, cynical in the sense, I mean, oh, yes, I've heard it all, I've done it all. You know, yes, you tell me to pray. Well, I prayed and it didn't work. And yes, I read the Bible and it doesn't work. And yes, I've gone to church and, it, but I, and the promises, I've claimed them and blamed them and so forth, named them, and, and then they didn't work. And, uh, and it's just like that. So they're all kind of like, mm, and they're sitting there waiting for the next 20 years so they can die and go to heaven in which they think something could be better up there. But that was never God's plan. God's plan is for you to see in this earth the fulfillment of God's promises. Now the way that takes place is understanding fundamentally. See, that's the basic thing that has to be. This fundamental truth and bringing yourself in the line with it. And that is the assertion that God is sovereign. The Bible says all things were made by him. And without him, 
was not anything made that was made. In him is life, and that life is the light of men. The Bible pictures it like this. In the beginning, God. Now, that's the first statement in the Bible. In the beginning, God. Now, the reason it says that is because there was nothing else. There were no angels. There were no cherubim. There were no seraphim. There were no planets. There was no sun, moon, and stars. There was simply nothing. If God existed and filled the entire void, whatever it was. Then God determined to bring forth a plan. And that plan would ultimately include you and I, would include man, woman, all the things that we see today, but not as we see it today. See, that has been an aberration, a distortion of what God is aiming at, and all of God's doing to bring man into being, and then ultimately to bring Christ down to this earth, and then to bring man to this ultimate destination of his, is to create a family. Not just God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, but to create a family in a proper relationship that will exist throughout all eternity, wherein God would be able to pour all of the blessings, all of the love, all of the good things that he desires to be fulfilled in his creation, to bring that man into relationship with himself so that he being just a little lower than God, still sustained by God, but right up there with God, would be able to participate in those blessings throughout all eternity. But now, what we're here on this earth as pilgrims and as sojourners and as tenants, the Bible makes that very clear, we are in this learning relationship with God to bring ourselves into this sovereign relationship where God is sovereign and we are his subjects. We are his servants. We are his children. We are obedient to him. We are carrying out his will on this earth with delight in our hearts because we recognize who and what God is. Now, in the beginning... This is exactly the condition of the earth. God created man in his image and after his likeness so that man was able to think like God thinks. Man was able to feel like God feels. Man was able to act like God acts, not on the same level of an infinite scale, but still to be a creative individual, creative person, and to carry out God's perfect will on this earth. He had a set of values that was exactly like God's set of values. So what God valued, man valued. What God did not count important, man did not count important. Now, as long as the world was like that, and that was God's original plan, and had the world continue that way. Let's say Adam had not sinned, and his offspring had not sinned. But they had constantly walked in God's ways as they had every opportunity to do, because their sin was not pulling on them. If they had continued, then here is what the condition of the world would be. There would be no overpopulation. People would have multiplied and would have filled the earth according to God's divine plan because he asserts the truth, I open the womb, I close the womb. But what has happened in this world today is we see overpopulation in some areas, like China is terribly overpopulated, places like Africa, certain parts of it are terribly overpopulated, some other parts of it are underpopulated. There would be no famine as we know it today where whole weather conditions would change in a dramatic way for year after year and then food would not grow and the next thing thousands upon thousands, sometimes even millions of people have perished under long-term famines. There would be nothing like that in this world today. There would be no sickness as we know it. There would have been no death. Adam's children would not have died. He would not have died. See, God intended a totally harmonious world in which he being sovereign, nothing could intrude upon that, and as long as people maintain that relationship to him, nothing could have intruded upon that idyllic situation. Now that was God's 
plan. That's what he brought. That's what he made available. Now, God knew sin would come into the world. Therefore, the Bible says, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. And all prophecies speak of the coming one. That God had understood this. But I'm saying he created a set of free moral agents who had the full power to follow after God, allow him to be sovereign in their lives, follow his commandments, walk in his ways, listen to his teachings, and do his will upon this earth, and then that earth would have never been distorted like we see the world today, filled with poverty, filled with sickness, filled with crime. All of these are distortions from God's original plan. Now, it's an interesting thing that the Bible names the first man Adam, means from the earth, or red earth, means from the earth. But it calls Jesus the second man Adam. Now what Adam threw away, because he rejected the sovereignty of God, and allowed all of these distortions to come into the world, and by the way, all men, from the beginning of time since that sin, until now, and as long as this earth continues as it presently is, the Bible says all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, what is sinning? Sinning is simply rejecting the sovereignty of God and placing my own will, my own desires, my own set of values above God's set of values and saying, I do not care what God says, this is what is right for me and this is what I'm going to do. In other words, I become sovereign of my own life and I reject the sovereignty of God. Whereas on the other hand, God asserts very strongly that he has sovereignty or rule over every aspect of our lives. That is our body. He makes it very clear. Glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are what? God's. See, my body, now notice this, not just in some ephemeral way, God is saying, I made your body. Psalm 137, Psalm 139, I made your body, even the parts that your mother and your father participated in, the eating and so forth, the coming together, I made you, I brought you forth, here you are, you are here for my purposes. Now the only man since Adam that understood that and carried it out fully was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what it says of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second man Adam, says, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Now see, he fully understood the sovereign place of God. We say, well, isn't Jesus equal to God the Father? Not from what I can see scripturally. Now see, this has to be fully understood. Jesus is fully God. Jesus was never created. Jesus has always existed. He is the eternal, only begotten Son of God. But he too is under authority to God the Father. They are not equal in that sense. Jesus is here to carry out the will of the Father. Jesus in heaven is carrying out the will of the Father. And the Bible says he must rule. Jesus now must rule till all of his enemies are put under his feet. In other words, all things contrary to God's purpose are put under the feet of Jesus and done away with. Then the Bible says, then cometh the end, when Jesus himself will surrender the kingdom to God the Father, that God, God the Father, may be all in all. In other words, God ever supreme, ever sovereign, ever the ruler, even the Son, the Holy Spirit, submit themselves completely and totally to him. Now, it's always been that way. See, that's why in the New Testament it says, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. When Jesus was facing the cross, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. See, he fully understood his place in the scheme of things. Now, when we do not understand that sovereignty of God, that concept of the sovereignty of God, 
We come under this Adamic curse. In some measure, it is working in our lives to the extent that we do not understand the sovereign position that God takes. Our set of values, our set of morals, everything that we do that has relationship to God must flow from him and be submitted to him and under his sovereign reign and rule. Now, that was the way I say it was in the beginning. Then in comes this intruder who already had rejected the sovereignty of God. This is Satan. He's rejected the sovereignty of God. Now he comes in. He's already fallen from his place because you cannot resist the sovereignty of God without bringing destruction upon yourself. He had a period of time in which to repent. Satan did not repent. And the result is God cast him out of heaven. He tumbled down to the earth. And now we see him entering the Garden of Eden. Now, this Garden of Eden was an idyllic place. In it was no harm, no danger, and Satan could do no harm. He could not come to this Garden of Eden. He could not destroy the crops. He could not destroy the animals. He could not cause death. He could not cause pain. He could do not one thing as long as Adam, together with his wife Eve, remained knitted together, covenanted together under the sovereign hand of God. Now, as long as they did that and walked that way, Satan could come in and he could throw out a thing, but he could not do anything to them. They were obedient to God. And therefore, the hedge of God or the protection of God was completely around them, and Satan could do nothing to them at all. He could not harm them in any matter. Now he speaks to Eve, and he said, Eve, did not God say that you could partake of the trees of the garden, all of them? No. He said, there's a tree in the midst of the garden, a tree of knowledge of good and evil. We may not partake of it, nor touch it, for in the day that we do, we will die. Now, notice Satan's attack on God's sovereignty. The attack will always be on God's sovereignty. Everything will be to get you to not do the will of God, to assert your will over God's will. Well, I know what this says, but here's what I've always wanted. Well, I know, but I believe that I have a right to. And we are asserting our will over God's will. So Satan comes, who the one who has already asserted his will over God's will and has fallen Therefore, in the disfavor and destruction, he's passed out of that place of favor with God and can never get back there again because of the crime that he committed. Now he goes to Eve and said, you shall not surely die. Now notice, first of all, it says, not only is God not sovereign, this will come later, but God is also a liar. He told you you will die. Well, I wish to say something to you. You will not die. In other words, you can get away with this. See, you just go right ahead and sin, and you can get away with this. You do not have to do what God tells you to do, and furthermore, he will not bring death upon you or allow it to come. He's just not telling the truth at all. You will not surely die. But God knows that in the day that you partake of that fruit, your eyes will be opened. And now here's the thing that he threw out, and this is the hook that has produced all of these distortions that we know in the world today. God knows that in the day you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, now, if you know both good and evil, in that sense, theoretically, you should be able to write your own laws. Well, I know what's good for me, and I know what's bad for me, and I know what's right for me, and I know what's wrong for me. So, he said, partake of that tree. Go ahead. You won't die. You'll be like God. And she said, well, the tree looks good, and so forth. She partook of it. Her eyes rose. She went to her husband, gave to him. Now, the Bible says about Eve, says she was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. He fully understood, not the full nature, the extent of all that he would be doing, but he knew it was wrong. He knew the full extent of it. He knew that he was literally rejecting God's sovereignty, that he was taking on an authority that was not his by right. And the Bible said, yet he partook of the tree. And then the eyes of them both were open. The Bible says they knew they were naked. and They ran and hid themselves. And then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden and were filled for the first time 
with F-E-A-R, fear and the process of death had already begun to work in them. Now, if we can understand the rejection of the sovereignty of God is two things. Number one, it, number one, produces all sin. At the root of it is the rejection of the sovereignty of God. I know what is right, but here's what is right for me. Or I know what God's word says, but I know my reason tells me, and therefore for me this is the best thing. And so we reject God's right to extend himself over and say, this is correct, this is the way to walk, follow my path, follow my way. We reject that, and we go and do our own thing. Now, sin, at the very root of it, is always that one thing. It's the rejection of the sovereignty of God and the substitution of our own set of ideas about what is right and what is wrong. Adam came to the conclusion that for him, it was better to reject the sovereignty of God and attempt to be like God himself, the same thing that Satan was induced to do by his own wickedness. Attempt to be like God himself and start writing his own laws, take over this earth, and be the sovereign of it himself. And the result was his eyes were opened, suddenly filled with fear. They ran and hid themselves, and I say death, and all of his distortions entered the world. Now, if those distortions had not come, then there would be no poverty as we know it today. I'm saying there would be no overpopulation. See, the world today is filled, some areas are desperately overpopulated, so it's just a matter of time until terrible famine will hit, till disease will hit, till all kinds of things. They do not understand about sanitation in a proper way, and the next thing, the rampant diseases and pestilences are going through them, and they're being destroyed right and left. Never would have been like that at all upon the face of the earth. There would be no poverty, or there would be no oppression. There would be no human government as we know it today. There would be God's government. He came down every day and talked with Adam and Eve in the garden and instructed them and guided them and led them and taught them and ministered to them and worked with them and loved them and cared for them. There would not be human government as we know today. Human government was not known until after the flood. See, after the flood, man came out. Here are these distortions that brought about the destruction of nearly all of the earth. That is the known earth at that time. All the people on it except for Noah and his wife, and his sons and their wives, eight people in all, came out of that ark to begin repopulating the earth again. And when they did, God for the first time said, anyone who takes man's life by man shall his life be taken. And when he passed the authority into man's hands to take another's life because of murder or because of destruction of human life. Now notice again the breaking down of the sovereignty of God. When here is a person with a human life that God has given him, and here again, I am a human with a life that God has given me. And I make up my mind for whatever reason, outside a judicial process, which God has granted into man to be used in a proper way, justice, right way. But I look at this man, and this man has offended me, or he's done something I don't like, and I make up my mind in spite of the fact that God has given me no authority to take his life, whatever, I assert my authority as sovereign, and I think I have the right to take his life. So I take his life. God says, if a man does that, then by man shall his life be taken away from him. See, and thus the basis for human government. When you give to man the power to take human life, you give him all the powers that derive from that, which is the power to govern and make laws in every area of life. Thus human government came. But the plan of God was never to have human government as we know it today. Now, nothing we can do to get rid of it now until Jesus comes back. But the plan of God was to have a theocracy where God would rule all men and women being without sin, would have been able to relate directly to him, understand his will and his ways, walk in it in relationship to each other. And I tell you, if that were so, then no woman would have cast her seed 
You would not find the disease that you see today. There would be no oppression. There would be no poverty. There would be none of the ills that we see today would exist upon this earth. But because of sin, the earth has become more and more distorted in its relationships to God, its relationships to each other, and relationships to every possible thing upon the face of the earth. The earth has been raped, it has been pillaged, it's been destroyed, it's been overrun, as man and his greedy desire for money and profits and power and whatever else he's striving for, he has ruthlessly destroyed the earth until today we're on the verge of nuclear holocaust, we're on the verge of a terrible war, we're on the verge of all kinds of terrible things going on the earth. Now, all of this happened as a result of the rejection by man. See, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The rejection of man of God's sovereign position. Now, what is God attempting to do in this world? Well, he has, through the second man, Adam, see, second man, he is bringing into this earth a brand new creation. Now, the new creation comes to being by the old man passing out of existence, by repentance, by surrender to God, Lord, I repent. And that's why you have to repent to be saved. You can't just get saved. Like, well, now I don't like going to hell. I read about that and I see, yeah, I believe in hell. And I don't want to go to hell. So, Lord, uh, save me, will you? You cannot get saved by simply wanting to get saved. There is a condition that precedes it. And the condition is repentance. In other words, Lord, I have rejected your sovereignty. I have written my own laws. I have walked in my own ways. I have done my own thing. I have violated your command. My values are wrong. My ideas are wrong. My directions are wrong. Now, Lord, I see that that is sin, and I repent of that way of walking. Please, Lord, and based on the fact that I've repented and that you sent Jesus so that I could be born again, so I could become a new person, I could be forgiven, Lord, for the reason that Jesus came and for the reason of my repentance, save me, O Lord, and bring me into eternal life. Now, when a man repents and places his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, now you have to understand what that faith is to be. That faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is once again, my faith is in you, Lord. Okay, now I'm a Christian. That is true as far as a baby Christian. But that's not where God intends to lead us. God intends to bring us to the place where Jesus will not just be Savior, not just sort of like brought us to birth, but that Jesus will become Lord. See, and the word there is Lord, ruler of heaven and earth. So we come to Jesus Christ and say, you are not only my Savior, but you are my God, you are my Lord, and I will follow you all the days of your life. And what your values are will be my values. See, now let's go back now to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam, what his values were, were God's values. What his ideas of life were, were God's ideas of life. What his pattern of behavior was, was God's pattern of behavior. So he merely reflected, because he was the image and likeness of God, he reflected and carried out on this earth exactly what was being transmitted to him through the Holy Spirit, and he was simply walking in the ways of God on this earth. Now, Eve following the same pattern until they sinned. Their children, had they followed the same pattern and expressed the life of God on this earth, there would have been no ecological destruction. There would have been no pollution of the earth. There would have been no ruin of mankind. All this is a result of doing it not God's way, not receiving instruction from God, but rather opening ourselves up either to our own ideas or Satan's ideas, both of which are totally destructive. See, that's why Jesus said to Peter, when Peter said, No, you shall not go to the cross. This shall not be so to you, Lord. And Jesus said, Satan, get behind me. You savor of the things that be of men and not of God. Signifying that natural man and Satan think exactly the same way. Contrary 
to the sovereign purposes of God. Now, what he has brought us back into, the possibility, through Jesus Christ, is coming back into this relationship to God where he truly becomes sovereign of every part of our life. And we say, Lord, you're sovereign over my body. You're sovereign over my mind. You're sovereign over my future. You're sovereign over my emotions. You're sovereign over my spirit. You're sovereign over the money that you've given me. You're sovereign over all possessions that are in my hand. You're sovereign over my family. You're sovereign over the church. You're sovereign over this world. See, our whole thought once again is we are submitted to God for his purposes to be carried out in this life. Now, that is a far cry from where most Christians are. Most Christians have a hidden agenda and sometimes a pretty open agenda of the things they want to do and they want to accomplish and they want to be. But you say, but have you heard from God? Is this what God wants you to do? Well, I don't know about that, but I know what I've always wanted to do. See, I've always wanted to be a fireman. I've always wanted to be a, a lawyer. I've always wanted to be an airplane pilot. I've always wanted to be a this. So I'm learning this. I'm going to do this. And then I'm going to... But has God? Have you talked to God? Has he led you? Is he instructing you? Is he guiding you? Is he... See, that's a different concept altogether. Now the concept is, oh, Lord God, what did you bring me into this earth for? For what purpose am I here? Why have you called me? Why have you made me? Why have you brought me forth? Am I using my body in the way that I should? You see, sickness is a distortion of God's perfect idea. For instance, myself, when I'm doing what I should be doing, and see, I recognize in my life, not a full overcoming in every area of my life, and the area of the body is a particular one with me that has been a long time battle, and I pray that God will accomplish total victory, because my mind is set that he should be sovereign in it, but I've not exactly found the way to do it yet, but I'm learning better and better how to handle myself or how to let him handle it. But God has given me a good body, born with strong health and uh, just vigor and vitality and strength, but over the years, we don't give thought to the the emotions that rack our bodies and our minds and our spirits, and we allow those things, much like the spirit of hatred, can get on us, and not in us, but on us, we can get in us too if we're unsafe, but on us, and next thing we're filled with hatred toward people, or, or we're filled with negative uh, self-talk, you know, and uh, oh, i just tell you something, I, uh, boy, I tell you, I just, uh, oh man, it's going to be another rotten day, I know it is, uh, look at that out there, oh boy, these things are always coming down on me, and man, I never win anything at all, and boy, I just tell you, things just go rotten for me, they've gone rotten all my life, and now they're, I do the rest of them, oh, what, what an old age I'm going to have, I'll tell you this. <laughs> See, we get all, oh, oh man, I'm all bummed out today. I'm all, well, what happened? I don't know. I just feel bummed out today. I'm really bummed out. I mean, I really. See, now we're allowing these things to work in our minds instead of like, if there be anything, see, think on these things. If there be any love, if there be any truth, if there be any joy, if there be any. See, think on these things. Fill your minds with the blessing of God. Fill your mind with the promises of God. Fill your mind with the word of God. Fill your mind with dreams and visions that God puts in your heart. But many times we're filled with the wrong kinds of dreams and visions and we're all trying to do our thing. Here's the sovereign saying, no, this is the way, follow me. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, follow me. And instead of that, we're saying, well, Lord, I believe in you and all that and therefore I'm saved, but here's the way I'm going. So the next thing, we're off down this road here, and our lives are not going well. See, because we are not submitted to the sovereignty of God. Now, without that understanding, fundamental understanding, all of the promises of God are like of no effect. Now, I talk to you often about taking care of the poor. Next week, I'm going to be dealing with the subject of investing in the kingdom of God, but from the point of view of God's sovereignty. But I want to just kind of give a little hint 
of what I'm speaking about here. One of the distortions of this world is this terrible poverty which has come in the world. And God looks down on that, looks down with pain from Adam's sin on. And when Adam sinned, all of these distortions that come, and here's God saying, I don't want people poor. I don't want people sick. I don't want people lost. I don't want people hurting. I don't want families breaking up. I don't want children orphaned. I don't want... See, here's the thing that is in the heart of God. These distortions, he's looking at them saying, I want this brought into a state of balance. That's why he brought his son, that we can come into a relationship with him and help to bring these distortions at least into a better situation. Or at least we can take a few people out of the world and demonstrate God's goodness to them and see what can take place. I look at myself, and my natural tendency is, because being a self-centered type of individual without Christ in my heart, is I get out there and I work and I earn all I can earn, and the old saying, get all you can and can all you get. Now, that would be a typical mentality, the way I would think. I'm going to get out there, I'm going to use all my strength and all my ability. I'm, and the guy's saying, would you help me? Sorry, man. Every man's got to stand his own two feet and all that stuff. And, uh, man, I'm out here getting all, so I'm gathering it all in like I can, like that. Now I get it all in. It's way more than I can use. I say, please get me cans, lots of cans, because I'm going to can all I've got. Now, is there an illustration like that in the Bible? Yes, the Bible said this rich man, his fields brought forth abundantly, and he said, I know what I will do. I will build bigger barns, and I will store all the things which I have made. And then I will say, soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You have much goods laid up for many days. And God says, thou fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who will those things be which you have stored up? See, Solomon had the other thing. He said, this is vanity and vexation of spirit. He said, a man labors all of his life, and he builds up a great estate. And he says, how does he know what he will leave it to a fool when he departs this earth? Now, see, we don't have to do that. We can know what we're doing. But he didn't know. And he was tormented by this idea. I build this all up, and then I have to leave it? And how do I know I'm going to leave it? Somebody can blow the whole thing out, and nothing's going to be left at all. What did I? And he said, what did I do all that hard work for? See, well, I think a lot of people have wondered about that. What did I that for. But if you understand the purpose of God, that his plan is to make us managers in his kingdom, see, that he puts things in our hands. He gives me help for what purpose? Because he sees the lost that are in this world and he says, son, I want you to stand up and I want you to go preach the gospel in all the world and I want you to bring as many people to my son Jesus Christ as you possibly can. If you do, I will pour out my spirit upon you. I will bless you. I will walk with you. I will be with you. I will enlarge the states of your tent, the parameters of your tent and so forth. I will do all these things for you if you will enter in to helping me correct these distortions. Look over here at these poor people. Will you help me relieve their pain? I don't want them pained like that. If you do, I will put money in your hands. I will bless the work of your hands. Everything you touch it will begin to prosper because you care for those poor people. Look over here at these sick people. Will you pray for them? Will you heal them? Will you go to them? Will you attempt to? See, in any man or woman who enters into that sovereign relationship with God where they abandon their ideas about what they want in life and say, Lord, I only want what you want in life and I want you to reveal your will to me and I'm going to carry out your will upon this earth. Then I want to tell you something. God will bless you abundantly in every direction. Now you see, Job, I don't know if Job was a particularly smart man. As a matter of fact, some of the things that I see some of the people do in the Bible, I think when they acted by themselves, didn't show them being too smart at all. As a matter of fact, some of them acted just kind of funny, really. But when they were moving in the Spirit of God, see, when they understood a fundamental idea, 
and they moved in it, they were greatly blessed. Now let's take a look at Job here. I'm going to read chapter 1. I'm just going to read one verse out of it. Well, maybe two or three, but just very few. Satan comes, verse 1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. In other words, totally submitted to God. He was walking in that way. Then it tells all of his blessings. Now verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about in the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth. Now what was so unique about him, all right? A blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That was the basis of his life. And Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Now let me show you what happened here. God is looking for a man. He's looking for not a man, men, women, just anyone who will hear him. But Job heard him. Job said, Lord, I'm going to do what you want me to do the best I know how. Now, I don't know if Job was rich when he started out. I maybe didn't have two pennies he could rub together. I'm going to do the best I can to carry out your will on this earth the best I know how, O oh Lord. We'll see a little bit how he did it later on. I'm going to turn away from evil. Whatever you say is evil, to me that's evil. I'm going to turn away from wrongdoing. I'm going to walk as blameless before you as I can. I'm going to carry out your will on this earth, O oh God. And then the Bible says, then God put a hedge around Job. They, and this devourer who would have loved to have gotten to Job and destroyed him completely could not touch him at all. And further on the inside of that hedge, I will begin to bless Job and he will prosper in everything that he does. Why? Because he is going to use that prosperity to build up my kingdom. He's going to invest it in my kingdom. He's going to work to bring those distortions back into line. He's going to work to win as many people as he possibly can. He's going to manifest by example the life of godliness and so the God was able to point him to Satan of the angels of the universe and say, look at Job, there is no man like him on the earth, one that loves God and hates evil, blameless, See, because he followed after and submitted to the sovereignty of God. Now, what was Job's secret? See, was it some massive, great secret thing that he did? Well, over here in Job, the 29th chapter, and I've read this before, but you have to understand it in relationship to how powerfully God moves to the man who will help him to correct these distortions. All right, now here he is. For when the ear heard, it called me blessed. Now why? When the ear heard, it called me blessed. When the eye saw, it gave witness to me, because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. See, here's Job saying, will someone help me take care of the poor? Will someone hear me? I will bless them if they will hear me. I will enlarge them. I will prosper them. I will greatly multiply them upon the earth if they will hear me. Joseph, I hear you, Lord. I will do it. And I'm sure others heard it too. Same like an inner urging or an inner feeling. But some of them, oh man, I'm too busy to take care of the poor. I'll tell you what, give a little to the United Way. That's plenty good. And uh, But I've got so many things to do here and I'm building someday when I'm uh, 65 or 75 or 85. If I've got a great fortune, give, I'll leave a little bit of money to the poor. But right now, man, I've got so many things and I'm so busy. Job says, no, I'm going to go out of my way to take care of the poor. I'm going to go out of my way. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. I tell you something, I am so blessed 
that one of the marks of our South American and Central American ministries is orphanages. See, when I read this here, I said, Oh, Lord, are we helping the orphans? Oh, Lord, are we helping the poor? Well, when I go down to Nicaragua and I go down to Guatemala and I work there and I see some of the poor, the very poor of the earth, and they're coming to those churches and are being blessed and helped. And here's elderly ladies and elderly men that can hardly walk in there, taking them to church and making sure they're hearing the word of God. And here's orphans that are going to grow up with no help and no hope at all. And they're putting them in a place and teaching them the word of God. Uh, down there, I looked at sick little children. One child had been almost like in a coma for three or four months and now was beginning to come out of it. And I think one day he's going to be a healthy, fine child. Why? Because somebody cared to correct the distortions that were in the earth. And they went down there and they laid their life on the line to do it. And I tell you something, that's why this church, I pray that our missionary giving will increase by five times or 500%. So, and then one day when we get to 500%, I want to pray increase 500% more. See that we're able to give Say, Lord, we're a part of helping this correct these distortions that are upon the earth, O oh Lord. We want to see churches planted. We want to see the gospel go out. We want to see ministers raised. That's the idea of the school of evangelism. We want evangelists raised up. We want people in this city to hear the word of God. We want people to see not only in this city but throughout the earth to hear the word of God. That's why the school of ministries is starting, so we can train ministers to go plant churches and send them out with God's blessing to help correct the distortions that are upon this earth. I'm submitted to the sovereign position of God, and I want every one of you to be along with me because that's the secret of God's blessing when we become that see when we really enter into that then God draws a hedge of protection around us and begins to bless everything that our hands are put to and there's no limit to what he may do through you see now there's no secret of success the secret is just what Job did I'm doing what you said Lord I take care of the poor I take care of the orphan the blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me I made the widow's heart sing for joy I put on righteousness it clothed me I was eyes to the blind feet to the lame a father to the needy I brought justice to the oppressed that's the secret of it but most of us Satan is right there man think about yourself and the things you have to do to be happy and make sure you keep your mind on your own and just uh, think about you and uh, don't think about others and you've got to keep I mean you got to really work to make sure God is saying who will think with me about the oppressed of the earth who will think with me about the pain who will think with me about the loss who will think with me about those that my son died for who will think for me with this compassionate heart will you allow my compassion to come into you you want a secret of success the secret of success is to submit yourself to the sovereignty of God and let his attributes come into your life and then begin to act out on this life, the life that Jesus would have lived on this earth. The result will be the hedge of God will be put around everything that you do and you will prosper at everything that you touch. See, that's why this is so fundamental to every kind of blessing. Now, to try and claim the promises of God without understanding this is a total prostitution of all of God's purposes. Lord, I'm believing you for prosperity. Lord, I'm believing you for a Cadillac. Lord, I'm believing you for a new house. Lord, I'm believing you for riches. Lord, I... for what purpose? Well, because I want to have the, and you know, the king's kids, and then we should have the blessing, and then there is no teaching like this in the Bible. But there is a teaching that God wants to multiply you mightily in everything you do. If your heart is set to carry out his will on this earth and bless all that you can to correct these distortions that exist upon the face of the earth. And if I've had any long-term success, and I have, thank God for it, I want to tell you what it is. I've made more dumb mistakes and more stupid blunders 
than I suppose most men on the face of this earth made. But you know something? I somehow like fall in a mud puddle and come out smelling like a rose. And I think the reason is because my heart is set to do God's will on this earth. Lord, I want to do what you want me to do on this earth. And I tell you something, you can fall into a stinkhole and you'll rise up clean. You can fall into a fiery furnace, but the smell of fire will never pass to your garments. You'll walk out clean and powerful. That's God's plan. Now next week you come and I want to talk to you about investing in God's kingdom. I want to show you how to turn loose the blessing of God in your life. I mean, now the positive actions that you take, little actions, it's like a pantograph. I don't know if you know what a pantograph is. A pantograph is a kind of an arrangement of levers and so forth that you make little moves here like a little picture and enlarges that picture greatly over here like this. Well, I want to tell you, God's plan is that you make little moves here like this in line with what he wants. And I tell you, it shakes the whole universe. See, just like Dave Sapansky had a desire say, Jim, this sermon has helped me that you preached on purpose and vision. I'd like to write it down and make a book out of it. Well, I want to tell you, thousands of lives have been changed by that little move. See, so just write that down and make a book. wasn't much of a book. I mean, as far as, you know, fancy covers, it wasn't much of a book. Still isn't much of a book as far as fancy covers. But now it's reached all the way into China. It's being distributed over there. You understand that the day may come that I'll be gone from this earth. And Dave Sapansky will be gone from this earth. And you'll be gone from this earth. But that book could still be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the earth. See, a little move, tremendous results out here. I want that blessing on your